This is episode number 73, How Embracing Pressure and Competition Powered Figure Skater Megan Duhamel to an Olympic Gold Medal. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Any of the success that I've had in my career, and mostly with my partner, Eric, our greatest success was always in the most intense, high-pressure situation. That's what pushed us to thrive. And if we were ever in a situation that we were sitting comfortably and relaxed, we usually skated very poorly. I'm super excited about today's episode with Megan Duhamel. This woman is incredible and inspiring and she's achieved so much in her career. Megan Duhamel is the perfect blend of power, poise, flexibility, and grace on the ice. As a figure skater since the age of three, her entire life has been dedicated to being a hardworking and multifaceted athlete. With partner Eric Radford, she is a two-time Olympian. She won a gold medal this year in the team event and a bronze in the pairs event with Eric. In 2014, they also won a silver medal in the team event in the Olympics. She and Eric are also two-time world champions, and Megan has been the Canadian national champion seven times. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of her impressive accolades. I first met Megan just two weeks ago on the athlete panel at the Toronto Veg Fest. I loved her inspiring attitude and stories about how changing her diet 10 years ago changed the trajectory of her career. This is a fascinating podcast going into the mental and emotional aspects of figure skating. Discussion about how Megan's best performances coincided with the highest pressure environments and also about her transition to a plant-based diet and the food that she regularly eats. We also talked about the food that they feed athletes at the Olympics, like There's a 24-hour McDonald's and lots of unhealthy foods, which was a surprise to me. Other topics we covered that you'll learn about is body acceptance and growing up as a figure skater, pair skating versus individual skating, and the mental toughness aspect of it. I mean, these people are performing under pressure with a large audience and nine judges watching their every move. So just imagine what that would be like. So I really loved Megan's input on that. If you enjoy the show, I would really appreciate it if you took a screenshot and shared it with your friends on social media. Tag myself and tag Megan. We're both really active on Instagram and we would love to see what you thought of the show. If you don't want to miss any episodes, also make sure you hit the subscribe button. It helps spread the message. It helps with the reviews as well. Make sure that other people can get this show and experience the benefits of hearing from all of the amazing guests who have been on thus far. As I mentioned, Megan is a a plant-based athlete and she's been doing this for a decade. And she also studies holistic nutrition. So she's a really great resource. And if you're looking for resources, you can feel free to contact her on her website, Lutz, L-U-T-Z of greens.com. Or you can also join the Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. It's a Facebook group that I manage and it's free. You don't actually have to eat a fully plant-based diet. It's just about how to incorporate healthier eating habits into your life. I also have the Plant Power Tribe Instagram account. And that's more of my day to day food with recipes and information about different types of fruits and vegetables that you might find really interesting. 
If you haven't seen the Moxie and Grit avocado socks, check those out. It's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T dot com, moxieandgrit.com. And those are my most recent design and people are loving those socks. We all love avocados. I like eating avocado toast. I like putting some chimchurri on there, some tomatoes, some sprouts, some salt, and man, that is a great snack. So if you're an avocado fan, check out the avocado socks. All right, so let's get into the show with Megan Duhamel. I hope you guys really enjoy her energy as much as I did. Megan, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for thinking of me and having me. Yeah, it was so awesome when I met you at the Veg Fest in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, that was really fun. It's been an amazing uh, experience this summer. I've been able to go to a few Veg Fests and meet a lot of people that probably wouldn't otherwise have met. And it's been really, really cool. Awesome. Well, I want to talk about just your background and how you got into figure skating because you're the first actual figure skater I've ever met before. And it was the first sport I ever remember watching on TV as a kid. And I just loved it. So I'm so excited. Oh, that's so cool. I guess maybe skating is not so popular in your town. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the desert in New Mexico. So yeah, like I've only been ice definitely skating not. like maybe four times ever. <laughs> yeah, definitely not in your area for your parents to register you in skating lessons. <laughs> yeah, like so what age no, did st- you start? I started skating when I was three. And I'm from a super small town in northern Ontario, Lively. And, you know, your parents just registered you in like every activity. And I remember every night of the week I had a different sport or activity I did. And every year my mom would ask me, do you want to do your skating lessons again? And every year I said yes. But as I improved, you know, I started to need to take lessons more than just once a week. So each activity or sport would be eliminated until I was just skating all the time. Wow. And was anyone else in your family doing figure skating? My sister did for a really long time. And, you know, like she was two years older than me and she was like, obviously she was better than I was when I was younger. And I used to just want to be as good as my sister and do everything she did. So as she improved, I kind of just naturally followed that improvement through like sibling rivalry. Wow. Was it like happy rivalry or were you guys just (laughs) kind of like, oh, God, Well, for me, I thought it was happy rivalry because like I was the younger sibling, but I don't think it was so happy for her. You know, we ended, we eventually competed against each other. And there was one competition in the short program. I finished first and my sister finished fourth. So I was so excited and like bouncing all over the hotel room. And then my sister was crying in the bathroom and my mom was like, yay, you did it. You won. And then my mom would go to the bathroom and be like, oh, I know it's really sad that you came fourth. I hope you do better tomorrow. So it was always like, funny balance between the two of us. But eventually my sister stopped skating and I chose to continue pursuing it. What do you remember from some of your first performances? Uh, Not much, (laughs) to be honest, because I started competing at five. I entered my first skating competitions when I was five. So I don't really remember too much. But something that I do remember is that I often landed a skill or executed a skill for the first time in a competition. So sometimes when you're at a certain level or age group, you're required to do certain things. So I had stuff in my little routine that maybe I didn't ever do properly in practice. But for my age group, I was required to try it. And then um, oftentimes executed it very well for the first time under the pressure of a competition. Wow. So that was like, I guess, inner knowledge to what was to come for me as a competitor. (laughs) Do you find that you thrive under pressure like that? 
Yes. Yeah. Any of the success that I've had in my career and mostly with my partner, Eric, our greatest success was always in the most intense, high pressure situation. That's what pushed us to thrive. And if we were ever in a situation that we were sitting comfortably and relaxed, we usually skated very poorly. What mindset do you attribute to that? You know, Eric and I together and with our coaches and with our support team, we've talked a lot trying to narrow it down to figure out exactly what's the key and what's the magic. And I think when we're in a high pressure situation and I'm extremely nervous, I zone in with my focus. All the focus goes from like out here to one track and I can focus more intensely when I'm nervous, probably because I need to focus more intensely when I'm nervous. And I also thrive under like in competition. I'm a very competitive person. So when I'm put in those high pressure situations where, you know, there was often times in my career where when we stepped on the ice, the team before us scored a higher score than we had ever had. So while we were getting ready to skate, Eric and I were like, okay, I guess we need to skate better than we've ever skated in our life right now if we want to win. And we would skate the best we ever have and score higher. You know, just wanting to be better than everybody else, I think, drove that. And we equally had that competitive fire. Yeah. In one of my other podcasts, I was talking about competition with somebody and how it's our choice, how we want to view our competition. And it's really awesome whenever your competition can be like, it's hard because you're competing, but then they push you to be at your very, very best. And without a really strong competitor, there's just no way that you would have been at your best. So it's so cool that you've experienced that over and over. Yeah. And I mean, that's what sport is about. And that's what we use to improve ourselves. And even in our final performance at the Olympics, the German pair team skated right before us and they got an Olympic record score and the crowd was going crazy. And as I stepped on the ice, I had to laugh. And I was like, go figure that this is happening to me at the Olympics because this seems to have happened to me my entire life, skating in these positions where I'm forced to up my game. And it kind of made me feel comfortable in a way because I was like, oh, well, like I always do well in these situations. This is where I'm my best. And uh, that gave me a lot of confidence. And it's just a funny timing to have it happen at my last competition, the way that my career had kind of gone. Yeah. And how did that one end up? Very good. <laughs> we didn't skate an Olympic record performance, but I'd say it was our personal best performance for us. And in those moments, I think that you have a you have a choice of what you want to focus on. And when we stepped on the ice, instead of worrying about what they did and thinking, well, now we have no chance to do well, they're going to win. I took it as like, they got to have that great Olympic moment. Now I want mine. Like I felt so inspired when I was stepping on the ice to compete. I didn't care if they were going to beat us or not. It was like they had created magic. And I had just wished that I could create a little bit of that magic myself. And you kind of take that energy from the competitor before you with you when you get on the ice. That's so cool. I want to talk about whenever you started hitting puberty and how that affected you as a skater, both emotionally, but also physically. That's a good question. I mean, I guess it was as I was an early to mid teenager and my body like really fluctuated a lot before deciding to adopt a plant-based diet, just a lot of inflammation and weight kind of yo-yoing a little bit. Like, within a 10 pound an eight to 10 pound range. But when you're four foot 11, that's a lot in a performance judge sport, like figure skating. And, um, you know, I never lost my skills as I was going through puberty. Like I never was unable to jump or rotate as quickly. I always could keep that. 
but it was more like of an emotional adjustment. I think that that emotional phase when you're a teenager and you're going through like who you are and where you fit into the world. I feel like I maybe struggled with that a lot as a teenager, which led to very inconsistent performances as an athlete. Yeah, because especially as a teenager, whenever we're talking about confidence and self-belief, like that could be incredibly hard because we still have our own thoughts, but then you have all these criticisms coming. And then, like you said, like you're doing a sport where there's judges watching you and they're judging technical aspects, but they're, especially back then, they were really judging your appearance too. Yeah. I mean, they still do. Unfortunately, in a sport like skating, they do judge appearance a lot. And I knew like my coaches would never tell me like, oh, you need to get in better shape or you need to lose weight. But they would be like, so how's your off ice training going? Are you going to the gym? Are you doing what you're supposed to? And when that conversation came up, it was always a sign to me like, okay, I have to get back, like back to work properly. And it was never that I wasn't working properly, but I just wanted to fit in and make friends. So what the other kids were doing, I wanted to do it because I wanted to be part of this group. So if they were going out on the weekend and eating junk food and drinking, then I wanted to do that to be like them, not because inside of me, I wanted to do it. I was just, I guess, lost a little bit. And I always knew when I entered competitions, like my body type is not really even geared specifically towards figure skating. Like, I guess I have more of a gymnastics body type, not so like long and graceful. And that's what the judges want in skating. For some reason, they're less open to other type of body types and styles. So I think I did suffer a lot with my confidence because I always knew that I had like this downfall because of of the way my body was or the way that I was born with like a shorter, stockier body. So how did you work on that acceptance piece of getting to really appreciate and love your body the way it is as an athlete? Well, I started to recognize over the years, like many years down the road, that having the body that I did was the reason I could be successful in sport because I could do a lot of jumps and throws and athletic feats that other people couldn't do because they just simply weren't strong enough. And so I started to see it more as an advantage because I was like, well, I can do this triple Lutz because I have a body like this and that's going to get me a lot of points and that's going to help me win. So I kind of like just turned it into more of a positive thing. And when I started following a plant-based diet, it became a lot easier to maintain my weight. So I started, you know, not really struggling at all with my body weight. I felt very comfortable and I had leaned out a little bit. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into the plant-based diet, but like how long ago did you change your diet? 2008. So it's almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in December. And that's really when my career took off was around that same time. And, you know, they're very closely linked together. And I think one happened because of the other or vice versa. So when you were in high school skating, like, were you skating at a really high level thinking I'm going to the Olympics? Yes. When I was 14, I decided to move away from home. I wanted to go to the Olympics. And I'm, like I said earlier, from a really small town that didn't have a, an elite training center. And I had gone on for the summer to train in Barrie, Ontario at the Mariposa Skating School. And I got to see all these skaters that were going to the world championships and the Olympics and international competitions. And they were wearing jackets that said Canada on them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want one of those. What, like I never knew that that even existed. You know, I knew about the Olympics, but I didn't know about the process to get to the Olympics. And uh, I went home from that summer camp and I told my mom, I need to move there. That's where I need to train. That's where all these kids are going to internationals and the Olympics and worlds. And if I want to go to the Olympics, that's where I need to go. 
So my eye was always on going to the Olympics. That was what I thought would be the ultimate prize in my sport. So when I moved away from home at 14, I was definitely training with that in mind. That's so cool. And that's amazing that your parents supported you to do that. Because I imagine it'd be really hard for them to watch their 14 year old baby girl like move away. Yeah, I mean, thinking back on it, if I'm a parent, I'm not sure I would do the same thing. But I mean, it's what I wanted. And I think my parents, they knew how badly I wanted it and that I would do whatever it takes. And because it made me happy, I think it made them happy. But of course, it was like, really difficult in a lot of ways. And especially financially, like figure skating is a very expensive sport. And then we have to pay a family for me to live with. So you have to pay rent every month for a 14 year old to be fed and have a bed to sleep in. So it was really, really difficult, but I never felt like I didn't want to do it. Like even when it was the most difficult, I wanted to go to the rink and train and I wanted to go to the Olympics and I wanted to be with these coaches that could help get me there. Wow. And, you know, whenever I think about figure skating, I kind of put it in a similar category as like a ballerina or a gymnast, because you have to be incredibly strong, but you also have to be graceful and flexible and have a good cardiovascular system. Like you basically have to be the ultimate athlete. Um, (laughs) Endurance athletes, it's like we just go out and we just like push, but there's not a lot of grace that you have to have. Like I definitely can't dance. (laughs) So (laughs) me neither. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, like, like, how does that play into your training and how you've evolved? Because I'm sure that there's just so many different things that you have to train in a given week. Yes, skating is very multifaceted. Like there's so much aspects and you need such a particular body type to be successful because you need to be strong, but you need to be lean and small and graceful, but a pure athlete at the same time to do all the athletic feats that are required. And you need to have a lot of cardio. I mean, our long program was four and a half minutes long and like four and a half minutes doesn't seem like that long, but when you're pushing to the max for four and a half, it's like a four and a half minute sprint and you have to do it with a smile on your face. It's a a little bit difficult. And we always, I always balanced my training between strength and cardio training, which I would do twice a week. I would do Pilates classes once a week a class called eccentrics, which is a body movement stretching class that's done to choreography. So it's got a little bit of a dance aspect to it. And that would help like lengthen my lines and work on increasing my flexibility. And then obviously the training that we had to do on the ice every single day. So it was like training a lot of different parts of your body. And what made you decide to do pair skating over individual skating? At the time, it was quite simple to me that my path to success, I had a chance of it being a little bit more direct if I went into pair skating. I was skating singles on the national team for three years. And for three years, I finished sixth, fifth, and fourth in Canada. But in order to get out of Canada to the world championships or the Olympics, you had to place either top two or first. Like those, they either took two girls or one girl. And I was kind of like far behind those top two girls in Canada. And, um, I wanted to get to the Olympics. So I thought that trying pairs could accelerate me on that path. And I also happened to, the timing worked out really well that somebody called me to skate pairs with them that had already been to the Olympics and he was a national champion and he wanted to skate with me. And I had just finished fifth in Canada for singles. And I was like, well, here's a national champion or I'm coming fifth in singles. Like it seemed a little bit more logical to choose the pairs route. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like it'd be a lot different because when you're on your own, you're you're doing all the jumps and stuff. But then when you're 
you're actually like with somebody they're they're doing the lifts they're throwing you like how long did it take for you to adapt to that different style each pair element kind of took a different length of time there's a lot more to practice in pair skating and that's what i ended up growing to love was that it wasn't just about jumps and spins you could do death spirals, you could do <laughs> lifts, you could do throws, you could do twists, you could do pair spins, or you can do a solo spin. There's so many aspects and things to train. The jumps and throws came quite naturally to me because as a single skater, I already knew how to rotate and how to land. And the first time I ever tried throws, I landed them without a problem, throw triples. And the lifts were fairly easy for me to learn as well. And death spirals, the hardest things was Oddly enough, learning how to spin with another person. Hmm. When you watch, if somebody watches pair skating or ice dance, like a pair spin looks like simple and almost kind of a boring move sometimes. But it was actually really difficult to learn how to spin with another person's body weight on you and somebody like in your space and in your personal space as you're trying to be flexible and lift up your leg or bend forward. So that was quite hard for me. And also the twist. So the twist is when the guy throws the girl over his head and then he catches her and puts her down. So a throw I land on my own where I feel like I have all the control in the world because I'm landing it myself. But on a twist, I have little control because I have to rely on somebody else to catch me and put me down. And that was a that was very difficult to learn. And it it remained the hardest thing I did in pair skating over my whole career. How do you learn how I to never do those that. things? Because like the death, the I'm assuming, what did you call it? The death? Something with the word death? death? spiral. Is that the one where they're like <laughs> holding your feet and like your head is coming like inches from the ground? Yeah, they hold your hand and your head is like bent backward. Yeah. So like, how do you but learn how to do that easy. stuff? Well, first we had to learn like the hand grip and then what edge am I going on? Because you can be on a forward outside edge, a forward inside or a back inside or a back outside. You have to learn every variation of it. And then like, you know, a coach kind of like took my body and placed me like your shoulders here, your hip is popping here, your knee is going to be here, you're going to arc and make a little bit of a bridge. And you're going to give your partner pressure at the same time as you're trying to pull away from him, you're pushing down into him. And I mean, I was kind of like placed in these positions. And then it was like, okay, go try it. And it, it came very natural to me. I didn't have a hard time learning uh, that particular move. Yeah, it seems I'd like watched it enough of them that I kind of saw what was going on. <laughs> it seems like it'd just be so intimidating though. Cause like, what if you mess up, like your head, you're going to hit your head on the ice or like if they throw you too hard, how do you land if they throw you <laughs> or too, or not hard enough? Like all those things just seem as somebody who doesn't do any skating is like, Oh my God, how do you even do that? <laughs> well, it, and it happens. Sometimes we've done that death spiral and like our hands are really sweaty and we oh. lose grip and then it just like slips away. And I just kind of like slide away from Eric which like, I mean, that's not really painful. It's kind of funny. And I guess for me, it's not painful because I've kind of spent my whole life falling on the ice. Like it's just normal to me to fall or to have a bruise, like ever, <laughs> my hip or my knee or my bum or whatever it is that I have bruises on. The throws are different because you're falling with a lot of force. Like when you fall on throws, it hurts because you're, you have so much force. The throw is so big and you're trying to land on your right foot. And usually I could feel when the throw went wrong on the takeoff. And sometimes Eric would even throw me and go, oh, no, <laughs> if, he, if something went wrong. So I'd be in the air and I would hear him say that. But it was always really important that if we were doing a throw double or a throw triple or a throw quad, 
where I would rotate four times, you always have to commit to the rotation. Because if you're getting all this force into a throw and you bail on the rotation and just open up in the air, you come flying down out of control. And that's when it gets dangerous. So sometimes if I felt the takeoff go wrong, as I was in the air, I was already trying to figure out how to safely fall. Wow. If that's possible. (laughs) Wow. So was Eric the first partner that you had or how did you find him? No, I've had three partners. First, when I was still in Barrie, I skated with somebody named Ryan Arnold. And it was really just for fun. We were playing around one day and we could do throws and jumps really easily. And I felt like it was a good challenge to learn to skate pairs. But in the end, I chose to stop skating pairs and continue singles. That was my original decision. And then I got a phone call from Craig Bunton, who had been... Canadian champion and at the Olympics and I skated with him for three years and then I've skated with Eric for eight years and Eric was training with Craig and I with our same coaches so we were already in the same rink and we had the same coaches and we were both looking for a partner at the same time so our coaches kind of just linked us together. Wow. Yeah. And I watched some YouTube videos about you guys and you guys said you're soulmates on the ice and it was just like the best possible teammate you could have. What has that been like having those experiences to share with somebody and also like sharing the disappointment, sharing the nerves? I imagine that's been really amazing. Yeah, like it's quite an intimate relationship that you get when you're working on a team with somebody that closely and like working together every day for eight years, spend a lot of time together and through like your highest highs of your life, but also with through your lowest lows of your life. But I'm so grateful that I chose to commit to pair skating because To have those moments and have somebody to share them with, I feel like it's, I don't want to use the word better, but I'm going to because I can't think of something else. But I feel like it's so much better than just being by yourself. And it's kind of like a lonelier experience. And Eric and I were like really compatible working business partners from the very beginning. We, We understood that we had a common goal. We wanted to be the best. We wanted to go to the Olympics Every year, your goal changes. As we got better, we started realizing maybe we could win a medal at the Worlds or a medal at the Olympics. But at the beginning, we had a common goal. We wanted to go to the Olympics. We wanted to do things that no other pair team in the world had done. And we worked from there very diligently. We never wasted time fighting. We never, like, in the middle of a training, fought. We never had a fight in a training session. Like, we saw that as a waste of time. There was other things that we could be doing. And just a general understanding that like, I just trusted that he was doing the best that he could. And he was trusting that I was doing the best I could. So even when you have a bad day, it was like, well, that was the best you could do today. And always just a general understanding of that allowed us to have a very cohesive working relationship and be able to adapt to each other very easily during our early years. Through that communication, do you have any tips for people on how to effectively communicate with someone you're working with or even like a romantic partner that you've learned? That's a good question. I don't really think of myself as somebody with good communication, but I think somehow Eric and I managed it really well. I mean, it's really important when you're working with somebody or you're in a partnership with somebody that you're adaptable to one another. And sometimes we had to be adaptable to each other on the fly as things changed. And just remaining very patient and always trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Because, I mean, there were times where we were frustrated with each other, but always had to like sit back and be like, okay, like this is where he's coming from or him for me. Like this is where she's coming from and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes 
and always just remembering and respecting that you're doing the best that you can in the moment. And nobody's perfect and nobody's going to be perfect. But if you're doing the best you can, what more can you ask for? Yeah. So it sounds like doing your best and then having empathy for your partner. Yeah, definitely. And learning how to adapt to one another, being patient enough to adapt to one another throughout many different phases of life. Yeah. And speaking of adaptation, so it was funny because I had a massage today and I was really excited about our podcast. So I was telling my massage therapist about you. And then I found Uh out that she was actually a figure skater for 13 years and she like knew all about you. And so I was just, oh my cha- God. yeah, so I was like chatting with her a little bit. And she said that she thought pair skating would be really hard because on your own, you can make tweaks as an individual to still get in all the different things you need to do to score the points in your performance. Mm-hmm. But as a pair, like that would be a lot harder to do that. So have you guys had to do things like that before? No, like you can't really in pair skating. Everything is set on like a choreographed pattern where You can change things on the fly as a single skater, but we don't have time to communicate with each other how to change something when we're skating together. So it's like if mistakes happened in competition, we just tried to make sure that we could kind of forget about the mistake as fast as possible so we can get back on track. But you can't really change things as you go joining a skating routine. Like we barely ever even talk to each other in a routine. Like sometimes in training, we'll say the odd, like the odd thing to each other, but in competition, we never talk to each other. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. In like these performances, I wish I could make things change on the fly, but (laughs) it's like ESP, like, come on, do this. Yeah. (laughs) So I I took up a different discipline of mountain biking for a year just for fun. And it was more of the downhill oriented mountain biking where you make mistakes, but you have to get over it really quickly and move on and not let that linger in your mind. And it's so high Mm -hmm. speed that a mistake will cost you a lot. Whereas with endurance mountain biking, like you can make a mistake, but you have like seven hours to make up that time. So I was thinking about Mm -hmm. the type of sport that you're doing. And I mean, you're on camera in front of judges, and I'm sure that there are mistakes that are made. So how do you get over that? How do you move on from it? How do you put it behind you? And those times whenever it's stuck in your mind, like, oh, I can't believe I screwed that up. Like, how do you get over that in the middle of a performance? I mean, that's always the challenge. (laughs) That's the biggest (laughs) challenge. And we trained that. We always trained that. If we made a mistake, because every day you're training your programs. And if we made a mistake in training, we never stopped, ever. And sometimes one mistake would turn into 10. And then there was something to reassess and learn. And sometimes one mistake would turn into just one. And we would recover really well. So being able to succeed in this in competition comes from your training, first of all. And I mean... It was always a challenge to learn that point of recovery mentally. It wasn't physically. It was really mental in the program because as soon as you fall, it's kind of like your whole spirit could be emptied out of you. And sometimes we fell at the beginning of a program and it was like our biggest trick. And it's like, oh my God, we have to go four more minutes. We know it's over. You know, and as soon as you get that defeat, another mistake happens and another mistake happens. But some of our greatest performances, including at the Olympics, we had a mistake early in the program and then skated cleanly for the rest of it. And I remember at the Olympics in the long program, we, we started with the triple twist then we did the side-by-side triple Lutz and then the throw quad sow cow, which we were the only team trying that at the Olympics. So our opening was big tricks worth big, big points. And I missed the side-by-side triple Lutz. And I remember for one second, like a panic of, oh, 
oh my God, how did that happen? Because I hadn't missed any the entire time we were at the Olympics. And then I turned around and stepped forward and it was like, okay, next. And I forgot about it. And the throw quad sauka is like the hardest, most difficult element that's being done right now in pair skating. And we just four seconds later came around the corner and landed it. And uh, when we finished that routine, Eric and I were talking with our coaches and I was like, how did I do that? Like how? I'm going to wonder for the rest of my life how I stayed so calm in this high pressure situation and just was like, oh, well, I'm going to land throw quad now. When in training, I would never fall on that jump and then go and land the throw quad because I never fell on that jump in training. I mean, I remember being like baffled with myself, but then I realized that I was so fine tuned mentally, physically and mentally for the Olympics. I was ready for any scenario and I was so in the zone that everything just went into autopilot and um, mistakes can happen when you're an autopilot because I mean, we're human beings, but um, because of that muscle memory and ability to refocus, we had a great skate that by the end, not many people I think remembered the mistake. And I mean, we won the Olympic bronze medal. And if I landed that jump, we still would have won the bronze medal. So it didn't, that jump didn't change anything. Wow. Yeah. The mental toughness aspect of that is just mind blowing to me. You know, and I always wonder sometimes in the last two years, Eric was struggling with that particular jump more than me. So I, I always often wonder, like, what did he think when I missed it? He can see that I missed it. He did it. And he knows the most difficult thing is coming in four seconds. But Eric is usually so calm under pressure situations. I'm sure he was thinking the exact same thing as me. Like, OK, next. There's still lots of things to do and we're not giving up. Yeah, I also love just the forced presence of doing things that are really technical, like whether it be playing music on an instrument, technical mountain biking is the same way, or like the feeling you were just describing, that flow. When you get into that zone, it's just so amazing because everything else melts away. That's exactly what it's like. It's almost like you stepped out of yourself to somewhere else for four and a half minutes, then you came back to yourself and it was like you woke up. Like what happened? <laughs> It reminds me of that's old, what it feels like. Reminds me of old school when like Will Ferrell has to give this like speech in a debate club, and all of a sudden he's this really refined speaker, and then he just like <laughs> wakes up. He's like, "Oh, what happened?" <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> so I want to talk about the aspect of music and choreography because I know you have coaches, you have choreographers. Like, how do you select the music, and how does the choreography work? We mostly worked as a team over the years with our choreographer and our coaches. Eric is a musician. So, I mean, he has an ear for music and especially for music that he likes. So we were a little bit picky over the years about what music that we wanted to work with. Sometimes our choreographer had an idea and we told her that we didn't want to do that. We knew what we could do well. Also, in the last few years of our career, we knew what our style was and where we could be successful. But it was like, at the beginning of a season, everybody brought their ideas forward. And if we liked what our choreographer or our coach suggested, we agreed to do that. Or if we really felt personally connected to a certain piece, then we chose to do that and then kind of collaborate and try to think of what the music makes us feel, how we want to interpret it. What's our goal with this program? What do we want to achieve? Then you have to set the elements on the music. So you always want your big elements being on musical highlights and between all the elements, you're trying to do intricate choreography, which sometimes we achieved very difficult, intricate choreography. And um, as we got older, 
we found ourselves to struggle with that a little bit. And we, we kind of had to streamline that. Yeah, I mean, music is so emotional for some people, like certain songs really resonate and it can create a lot of energy as well, or even like slow down the energy. How much do you think the music in your performance contributes to the overall feel of it? I mean, is the music itself judged or is it just how you're interpreting the music? Um, Both of it. But it's in, skating is so interesting because in 2014, Eric wrote the music we skated to Whoa. at the Olympics in Sochi. But our interpretation was still scored like a seven out of 10. Hmm. But it was Eric who wrote the music. So shouldn't his interpretation be the perfect interpretation? It's his music. <laughs> so it's like interesting way to think about how things are done in our sport. But I think the crowd plays a big effect. We always tried to choose music that the crowd could connect to. We tried to make sure the composition was composed to come to a climax at the end and design elements that would be exciting for the crowd on those climaxes. And when the crowd builds this energy in a venue, for sure the judges feel it. Like they're part of the crowd. They can't ignore that energy that's been built. So the crowd plays a big effect into the way that the judges interpret the performance, I think, anyways, from my own personal belief. Hmm. In a way, it almost seems like the judges should be like in a soundproof room or something to make it even more <laughs> to make it even more objective. Because, yeah, I want to ask you about the judging, because I imagine there's times where you kind of felt like the judging wasn't fair because a lot of it is like it's supposed to be objective, but there is a lot of subjectivity and bias to that. And also like their previous opinions of you being able to leave those aside or even looking at you, you mentioned your body is more like powerful and muscular compared to what other skaters look like. So, I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, I always try to think of it like you have a judging panel of nine people. These nine people are all coming from different cultures. So they're all finding something different appealing. A Canadian judge will feel differently about music than the Chinese judge or the Russian judge. It's just the reality of our cultures. So you can't please, you can't please everybody. It's impossible. I like red. Maybe you like blue. Maybe the next person likes green. So sometimes we'd get feedback on our costumes, asking us to change our costumes because they don't like the color. It was like, okay, you don't like it, but it doesn't mean everybody won't like it. So you always have to try to um, take constructive criticism, like make sure that we are choosing the right criticism to take to build ourselves. But I mean, of course, there was times in my career where I thought that we were judged unfairly and we should have been judged higher. But there were also times where I was judged too high for what I did. You know, it works. It works in both ways. I've had some great skates that were underscored, but I've also had some terrible skates that were overscored. It works in both ways for everybody. So always just try to remember that when I felt like we were ripped off, it was like, okay, like one day I'll be rewarded when maybe I shouldn't be. And I guess like we just come, come to kind of accept stuff like this by when you're part of a, a judge sport or world like figure skating, you just accept that this is normal. And it was like, we knew going into these Olympics that we are fighting for a bronze medal. We knew that we didn't have a chance to win the gold. An outside mini possibility, but our focus was on getting that bronze because we knew we had struggled the year before. We were kind of like being surpassed by these other teams. Like we knew the reality was the judges might give us a bronze and that would be like gold to us. So I want to get into the Olympics a little bit. You mentioned you changed your diet in 08 and did that coincide right before an Olympic performance? Like 
I guess number one is what made you decide to change your diet? And then how did you keep doing that in your sport and know that this is going to be the right thing for you? I changed my diet really on a whim. I didn't know any vegetarians or vegans. I didn't even know what a vegan was really until I read this book one night and was like, oh, that seems like a fun challenge. I think I'm going to try to be vegan. Completely cold turkey, which is kind of against the grain of what most people do in that situation. And I learned everything through trial and error. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't even working with a professional nutritionist. I was researching and studying things as I went along and learning what my body needed because everybody's individual body needs something different. And through trial and error, I kind of found what worked for me. And I became passionate about wellness, which led me to wanting to study holistic nutrition and holistic health, and which allowed me to learn more. And then I could use what I learned on myself and kind of like continually like trying new things. What was the book that you read that you mentioned? It was called Skinny Bitch. It really wasn't oh, yeah. like something I read, like I read super that powerfully <laughs> enlightening. It was just really funny. And it wasn't even all about being vegan. It was talking about sugar and cola, animal products, like many lifestyle factors that lead into unhealthy lifestyles. And it was a small book. It's not very thick. So I could I read it all very, very quickly. And I mean, they were funny. The girls who wrote it were super funny and just kind of drew me in. And I was hooked. <laughs> Yeah, when I first changed my diet, that was one of the first books I read as well. I just thought it was funny, and, was, like entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there was a celebrity like around 2008, 2009 that was reading it and a tabloid caught a picture of her reading it. And that's when the book really like picked up. <laughs> so like, how did you get started? You mentioned cold turkey, but the question I get a lot of times from people is like, well, I want to try plant-based or I, I want to trend in that direction. How do I get started? So like, what advice would you give to people? Well, I cleaned up my fridge and I drank a black coffee that morning because I didn't have any non-dairy alternatives. And I started with foods that I was familiar with. I started like still eating my breakfast cereal, but just using soy milk at the time and still eating pasta, but just making sure that the pasta didn't have any egg in it and that I was using tomato-based dressing. You know, like I started extremely simple with foods that I was already familiar with. I already wasn't eating a lot of meat. I never liked meat. I don't like the texture of it. So like fake meat never really appealed to me too much. I started trying different versions of tofu because I'd never tried tofu before and learning about new fruits and vegetables because it's really shameful. But like I was what, like 22 or 23 years old and I'd never had an avocado. Wow. Like I'd never had an avocado. I'd never had a mango. Like I had like guacamole or like mangoes in something, but just like cutting up a mango or an avocado, I never had it. And it was like simple foods that I just started introducing to myself. And then I bought some cookbooks, started making some recipes. And then, you know, one thing led to another to experimenting with something else. And on I went. Were people worried that you like, was your partner worried about you changing your diet or your coaches? Like, oh, like, I don't know if you can do that as an athlete. Yeah, my coach actually was told me, you're going to be malnourished. All those vegans are malnourished and pale. And I was like, well, what vegans do you know? Because maybe they're just not healthy. And he was like, well, I don't know any vegans. And I was like, okay, well, don't tell me that I'm going to be unhealthy then. And then it kind of drove me that I was like, well, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to show you that I can be healthy and be a vegan at the same time. And um, it didn't take long until he was like on board and he had seen, you know, like the positive effects of it and was asking me to help the other athletes with their diets. 
Yeah. And you mentioned that your career took off. It coincided with your diet change. And I kind of had the same thing happen for me. Why do you think that is? Well, I think many things. First of all, changing my diet really helped not like it did help with my energy levels and my sleep. But something that I always struggled with was my ability to focus and concentrate. And eating a plant based diet really helped give me like clarity. I was able to focus for a longer period of time and stay concentrated for a longer period of time. And I also noticed that my rate of recovery was so quick. I could recover so fast, like just endless training and recover, train, recover, train, recover. And I was starting to get less injuries. I had less inflammation, which just allowed me to train more, more successfully. And I really think that those are those are the big key, key things in the athletic world was my ability to recover and my ability to like train better and smarter because I was more focused. And you give keynotes at VegFest and you give nutrition tips for athletes. Can you share some of those for our listeners? Yeah. One of the things that I always like to talk to athletes about, especially athletes that are in a sport like figure skating, which is so appearance oriented, is that I always encourage people not to read the calories or the fat or the protein on the back of a food label, but to read the ingredients and see how nutritiously dense your food is. Is the broccoli, if you're eating broccoli, you're getting a lot of nutritional density, a lot of vitamins, a lot of minerals, you're getting something out of that food for 100 calories. But if I ate 100 calories worth of chocolate, (laughs) I'm not getting anything out of that food. There's nothing nutritiously dense that it's giving my body. So to be less worried about the numbers on a food package and more concerned about the ingredients that are in your food and that you understand the ingredients in your food. It's not just all scientific coding and chemicals and toxins. I feel like this is really, really important. And I mean, I'm an extreme case where I just jumped into this cold turkey and I'm a realist. I know that this is not how other people will be. People are more likely to slowly, gradually get into it. And I think that that's a great way to go. I think it's important to educate yourself, do as much research as you possibly can, and to be creative and try new food. You'll see which new foods, which new vegetables you might like and some that you might hate, but just try to introduce new colorful food into your diet. Yeah. And how did your emotional relationship with food change? Because you mentioned that your weight yo-yoed quite a bit and mine did too, actually, until I changed my diet. So like, how did you start viewing your food? Like for me, I used to view my food as like good or bad, or like sometimes it was like, I'm going to eat this, but now I'm going to have to go punish myself with exercise to burn the calories. So like, how did that change for you? I mean, food became my fuel. And eating nutritiously dense whole foods that were plant-based fuels my body. It still does. It fuels my body for success in every area of my life. It goes beyond sport. And that's, that's really the way that I, I viewed food. And now I view food with more of an open mind as well. Um, and more curiosity, more of an open mind. And you have to forgive yourself because I mean, you're not going to eat this perfect healthy diet all the time. I mean, I like cakes and I like cupcakes and I like cookies, of course, vegan ones, but I like them. And, um, you know, I just allow myself to have that, to allow yourself to have these treats every once in a while and enjoy them. And it's not, it's, you know, having one treat every so often is not going to affect your weight or your ability to do something. Yeah, the perfectionist mindset, I mean, with diet or like even in sport, like especially in your sport, I'm sure it's really helpful to just not be focused on trying to be perfect all the time. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, there is no perfection and like, it's great to strive for perfection, but it's endless. You'll never get there. And I think that's something that I've learned through my years. It's something that's come with me and my wisdom now at my older age. (laughs) Yeah, you're so old. Um, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the food in the Olympic villages because, I mean, you've been to uh, three Olympics, right? Two. Two Olympics. Okay. Uh, 2014 and 2018. And I heard in another podcast I listened to that they had like 24-hour McDonald's available for all of the Olympic athletes to eat, which seems crazy to me that Olympic athletes would actually eat McDonald's. So like, how did you deal with that? Like, how did you find food and how did you plan ahead? I definitely had to plan ahead and I I kind of knew I would. I'd heard about this 24-hour McDonald's and, you know, (laughs) I'd been to enough events to know kind of cafeteria style food. Not only was it like not athlete friendly, the meals and the food that you're given at the Olympics. I mean, it's not vegan friendly, but it's not athlete friendly. Yeah. Like, I don't care if you're vegan or not. Athletes need whole grains. Athletes need greens. Athletes need proper fruits and vegetables and oats. And like, I could think of endless things. And if you're not vegan, you you want other sources of protein. But like, there's no whole grains. It was like white bread, white pasta, white rice, the fruits and vegetables, kind of like came from a can, I guess, like they're tasteless and just, I guess, cooked in a microwave. Like, I mean, they didn't taste like anything and the options of, you know, non-dairy and non-meat was very few and far between. (laughs) Each food had a little code on the top. So, I mean, you could find stuff, but I mean, eating white rice and potatoes and microwave broccoli every night gets old fast. (laughs) Yeah. So like, did you bring anything with you? I brought a lot of stuff with me. And I mean, I varied from the first Olympics because I learned what I needed and what I didn't after going to the Olympics for the first time. But I brought like all my own almond milk and coconut milk. I brought stuff uh, to make overnight oats. So every night I brought my chia seeds, I brought my oats, I brought my cinnamon, I brought my vanilla. I brought everything so I could make my overnight oats at night. I brought packages of brown rice and quinoa this time to the Olympics in 2018. I didn't have that in 2014 because I was told that in our condo like in the little condo that we live in we'll have like a stovetop but I didn't so I got a kettle and tried to make quinoa inside a kettle with the boiling water and I I mean I kind of managed I guess I also made uh, like granola bars and I brought my uh, coconut creamer for my coffees like I brought a lot of snack stuff some protein bars some trail mix all sorts of different things vitamin waters coconut water I brought a lot of stuff. <laughs> Were people jealous of your food? Were they like, oh, I wish I could eat that? Yes. But then I noticed in 2014, I don't know if I just noticed what people are eating more now than I did four years ago. But at the Olympics in 2018, I saw a lot of people making, bringing their oats with their seeds to the dining hall and like eating some cafeteria food, but using their little stuff they brought from home. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I thought I was the only one. And some of them weren't even vegan. They just wanted to eat healthy. And a lot of people brought their own little juice boxes of almond milk and soy milk and coconut milk so that they had a milk alternative. Because, I mean, McDonald's was supplying the coffee, but McDonald's doesn't offer a milk alternative. Yeah, like the politics behind the food seems crazy to me because you mentioned the cafeteria food at some of the events that you're at. And then at the Olympics, like, how come healthy food isn't available? Like, it seems like that should be number one. You would think, wouldn't you? I think that the companies that have money to pay the IOC are McDonald's and Coca-Cola. And that seems to be what money seems to be of more importance these days. 
and healthy food companies or plant-based companies don't have those millions of dollars to give the Olympic committee so that they could have food in the cafeteria. And I think part of the food is done by the, like the local organizing committee. And maybe they're just not educated in that area, but I just wish that I could be hired to make meal plans for athletes at events, even not just the Olympics, like regular skating events I would go to. They always had like a meal hall for the skaters. So you'd get a meal ticket and you'd have to eat your meals there. But I just, I spent so much money at competitions buying all my own food because that cafeteria would have nothing. And not only stuff for me, they wouldn't have healthy food for the athletes. And I feel like that should be such a big priority. And I don't know why it gets overlooked. I think you should just start doing the meal plan thing. I mean, there's nothing that would stop that. Like, yeah, do it. Well, I mean, I guess like the organizing committees have to hire me because they have their caterers that do it. Yeah. Or whoever they get from the hotel you're staying at, you know? I think there's demand. Yeah, for that, if anybody though. wants me, I'll do it. <laughs> I bet people listening to this podcast would want to just hire you to give them a nutrition plan to help them get started. Or even like if they're having issues with their diet, some people have tried eating plant based, but then they get too tired because they're not eating enough calories. Yeah, yeah, or they might be deficient in something too. And I mean, I've heard a lot of people and it's such a shame be like, I tried to be vegan and I didn't feel well. And I think that maybe they just didn't make the right choices and they weren't eating everything that their body needed and they weren't supplementing themselves with what their body needed because everybody's body needs something different. And that's, you know, like what I need is not the same as what you need. I think that it doesn't just not work for people. I think that they're just not doing it the right way, maybe. So you're retiring from competition this year, right? Or are, are yeah, you officially retired? After the, yeah. And like, what made you decide to retire this year? Well, we were like kind of hanging on just for the Olympics. We had a lot of success in our career with Eric before Eric, but with Eric was where the main part of my success came. We won the national championships. We won the world championships. We won various Grand Prix events. And the only thing we didn't do in our career was have a great skate at the Olympics because we didn't have a good performance in 2014. So we were kind of hanging on just for that moment. And as soon as we had that great moment at the Olympics, it was like our career was complete. There's nothing else I feel like I need to do in pair skating. Yeah, it just seems like that'd be a really hard thing to know, like when you should stop. Like I, I often think about that for myself because people say, well, how long can you keep racing mountain bikes? It's like I could do it for another decade if I wanted to. And I, I don't really know. You can like, do it forever if you want to. Yeah. And it's like, how do you know when you're fulfilled enough to stop? I mean, I started to have a lot of things I want to do in my life away from the sport and training for an Olympic medal and to be the best in the world. That's a full-time job. That's beyond a full-time job. I mean, that took up like, I want to have a family. I can't do something like that if I want to have kids. And we're so lucky in our sport of figure skating that we can leave the competitive world, but it doesn't mean that we leave figure skating because there's skating shows and tours and all sorts of stuff that Eric and I will continue to do. Like right now we're getting ready to go across Canada for two months and perform every single night. So we still have to train a little bit to do that, but without the stress of competition. <laughs> so it's a little bit different, Sounds a little so bit fun. more light. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> good to just go out there and, and not have to worry so much. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy performing like for the show. I, prefer to stay home. Like I'm more of like a homebody. So like traveling and all these rehearsals and stuff like that's not really my favorite, but every night when it's time for the show, that's what I love the most. 
I also wanted to ask you about the highs and lows because you've achieved such amazing success in your sport. You've been all over the world. Like you've had those feelings at the Olympics of, wow, like I just skated my absolute best. Like the crowd is going nuts. People are throwing all this stuff onto the ice. And then (laughs) it's like you come home and you're in normal life. And how do you just have a normal life after something like that? I don't know if like, I feel like sometimes I'm an exception to this because I love a normal life. I don't need the, this limelight, like the Olympics kind of shines on people, which is, it's amazing. And I, I had a great time in those moments, but I don't need it. And I kind of like, when you come home from something as big as the Olympics, it's funny because at the Olympics, we're living in like a bubble. You don't really know what's going on outside of you. You're in this Olympic bubble and in the village and like, you're kind of seeing the behind the scenes stuff. But what people are seeing at home is like in Canada, the Canadian athletes are like superstars for these three weeks of the Olympics. We're on TV all the time and they're talking about us on the news and now with social media, all over social media. And then I come back home and it's like, I just want to like take my dog to the store and buy some dog treats or go for a walk or go get my groceries And people are like, are you that skater? Were you at the Olympics? And like, I don't feel like it was, I'm like, I was, but now like, this is my life. But to them, it was, I don't know, like they see you as something that you don't feel like, I don't feel like this star from the Olympics or that I was this great athlete. I feel like I'm just myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I think that I adapt a little bit differently than most people. And I'm quite comfortable with kind of, I guess you could say the regular boring life at home Uh, that I like that. Yeah, it's super humble. Yeah, I don't know. I just I enjoy like the day to day life and running errands and just doing all the real life stuff. It's funny when we tour for two months, like you're gonna kind of live in hotels and on a tour bus and like, you don't make your own bed. You don't do your own laundry. You're always eating out. So you don't do dishes. After a while, it's like, I just want to make my bed and I just want to do dishes. Like, I just want to be a normal person. Like these, I want to do laundry. I want to go and wash the floor, clean the floors or, you know, like all these simple things that we complain about having to do after a while when you don't have to do it, like you're craving it. Yeah. It's like, it makes you feel grounded having that kind of routine. Yes, very much. Are there any non-negotiable daily habits that you have that you do every single day? Um, Well, I walk my dogs every day. I do yoga every day. Sometimes it's only a 10 or 15 minute. Like uh, it varies on the day, but I do yoga every day. I eat a banana every day. And like not a day passes that I don't eat a banana. (laughs) So those are a few of them. (laughs) Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to tell anybody about the mindset of skating or about eating plant-based before we wrap it up? I encourage everybody to at least try to adapt more plant-based foods into their diet and to always, always work on continually improving yourself in every aspect of your life. That's really been a main focus of my life the last few years. And I think that's what led me to my success in sport was my outlook of always wanting to improve, always wanting to be better. Um, my not better than somebody, but better than I was the day before and focusing on self-improvement and letting that be your motivation and your inspiration for life. And also, um, I have a website and blog that I, I share a lot of information on from recipes to wellness tips to workout ideas. And it's called lutsofgreens.com. 
the Lutz was the skating jump that my partner and I kind of made famous. So it was kind of my play on lots of greens. It's Lutz of the greens. quad. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that on your Instagram. And, and what's your Instagram so people can go follow you there? Yeah, Megan Duhamel. Just one word. M-E-A-G-A-N-D-U-H-A-M-E-L. And then I have lots of greens on Twitter and Facebook and lots of Cool. And what is the name of this uh, tour you're going to be doing across Canada so people can come watch? Yeah, it's called the Thank You Canada Tour. And it has um, kind of the group of skaters that just had the great success in Pyeongchang at the Olympics. Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer who won the gold medal in ice dance, Patrick Chan, Caitlin Osmond, who won the bronze medal in ladies. And Elvis Stoiko is joining us. And he was part of the Olympic team in the 90s. He went to four Olympics. And um, not Elvis, but the rest of us won the Olympic gold medal in the team event in Pyeongchang this year. And we've been competing together for so long. And this is just a way that we're kind of going across Canada and saying thank you to our fans and our supporters for supporting us along our career. And we're going to all the B cities. So it's kind of the smaller venues that don't generally get a show like this. And um, we're doing 31 cities across Canada throughout October and November. And it's going to be a really upbeat, really fun show, uh, trying to have a lot of interaction with the audience. And I think people would really enjoy it. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And it was super fun to actually have an hour to just chat with you after meeting you in Toronto. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Wow. I really don't have much to add after that amazing conversation. I was super engaged. I loved talking to her and I learned so much. Figure skating is something that I have always found really fascinating and something that I think would be just the hardest thing ever because I barely even know how to ice skate. I don't even know how to stop on ice skates. So the idea of having somebody throw you into the air, turning four times and landing on one leg while in a dress, smiling in front of judges and an audience just seems like the craziest thing ever. So I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from Megan. Feel free to contact her. She was really serious about her offer to help. And I know she's really passionate about plant-based nutrition. Again, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out and gets the word out about the show. Thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate that you're here. It means the world to me and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.